Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage today comes from Revelations 12, 7 through 12. Listen for what God is saying to you. Then there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought the dragons. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they did not prevail, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So the great dragon was thrown down, the old snake, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. The accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them day and night before our God, has been thrown down. They gained the victory over him on account of the blood of the Lamb and the word of their witness. Love for their own lives didn't make them afraid to die. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But oh, the horror for the Lord, I'm excuse me, the horror for the earth and sea. The devil has come down to you with great rage. For he knows that he only has a short time. May God add a blessing to the understanding and the living out of his scripture. Amen. Please join me in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the gift that it is to come together. We thank you for uh, making it through the trials and tribulations of the journey (laughs) to this location, Uh, whether it was through uh, flooded streets or closed streets or just... um, sleepy, uh, uh, sleepless nights um, and being tired this morning. We thank you for all the ways that um, we have managed to find ourselves here. And so I pray that, um, uh, that I, as I speak, um, that you would open the hearts and minds um, of those gathered here to hear uh, not just what I have to say, but God, more what you have to say to them, whatever that may be. So help us to be people of courage, people of open and people of faithfulness um, that we might receive and be transformed by what it is that you have to say to us this morning. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, who calls us and modeled for us toward transformation um, before we could even imagine it ourselves. Amen. So a couple of months ago, um, history was made uh, at the Emmy Awards when Lena Waithe was the first black woman to win the category of Best Comedy Writing Series. Now, if you're familiar with Master of None, the Netflix series, um, you'll know that it was a show created by Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang. And if you're familiar with the winning episode, Thanksgiving, that Lena wrote, uh, you'll know that it was a powerfully vulnerable story of coming out. In fact, it was Lena's own coming out story. You gonna tell your mom? Being gay isn't something black people love to talk about. Just glad you're in college and you ain't pregnant and on drugs. You ain't got to worry about me getting pregnant. I'm not 
gonna get pregnant because I don't like having sex with men. Have you tried it? No. All right, you know Erica? White Erica or black Erica? Nah, mixed Erica. Oh yeah, I know mixed Erica. She's cute. I like her. I have a crush on her. Wait, are, are you trying to tell me that you're, you know? Lebanese. Wait, you're from Lebanon? No, I just, I don't know how to, I'm not comfortable with the word, uh, lesbian. All right, so we'll say you're Lebanese. Ma, I'm gay. You, what? I'm gay. I've always been gay. I'm still the same person. I'm still your daughter. Nothing's changed. Me being gay is like tarnishing her trophy. Some black people think being gay is the choice. And when they find out that their kid is gay, they try to figure out what they did wrong. I just, I don't want life to be hard. It is hard enough being a black woman in this world. Now you want to add something else to that. It's not like this was my choice. I think it's cool you're a Lebanese trophy. Thanks, dude. There are so many layers that could be unpacked. <laughs> Intersections around race and gender and sexuality. But the thing I want to lift up this morning is the impact that this episode had on just about everyone who saw it. There was something so vulnerable, so close to the bone about the way that this story was told that made it so powerful. For many LGBTQ identifying folk, there was a deep resonance and affirmation that they had been seen and portrayed in a way that was authentic and loving. And for the rest of us, there was no denying that we were being given access to a deeply intimate and painful but beautiful journey. And for all of us, I think we experience the way that telling authentic and vulnerable stories can be a powerful vehicle for truth-telling and affirmation. It's a strange thing to think that stories could be powerful. And yet it's exactly that, telling truth stories bearing witness that we are told is one of the primary ways in which evil is dismantled and defeated. Now here in chapter 12 of Revelation, we have this epic battle where, where the rebels armed with the plans for demolishing the Death Star have finally reached its core and with the destruction of the seventh Horcrux, finally Darth Voldemort has been excommunicated from the tables of power. So that's not exactly how it went down, but the story that John of Patmos writes is just about as dramatic. The devil has been cast out, furious and mortally wounded, but it isn't through yet. It knows its time is coming to an end and goes forward on earth to wreak as much destruction, chaos, and war as it can for the rest of its dwindling life. 
And the next chapter goes on to detail just what that destruction, chaos, and war looks like. But before getting there, John pauses for a moment to investigate. What was it that brought down the devil? What was this powerful weapon that did evil in? Now, the angel Michael and his army are the undisputed heavyweights. So when they're throwing punches, it's real. And you think, you would think at first at least, that it must have been Michael and his crew that ended this thing. But John comes to a different conclusion. He says, they gained the victory over the devil on account of the blood of the lamb and the word of their witness. Love for their own lives did not make them afraid to die. The blood of the lamb, the word of their witness, courage and sacrifice. These are the weapons that led to dismantling and destroying evil. It wasn't weapons of violence, but rather weapons of a different kind, weapons forged by deep love, courageous vulnerability, and a willingness to let go of the things that we cling to for the sake of something much bigger than ourselves. The great battle between God and evil is won by weapons of mass restoration, weapons that restore belovedness, restore humanness, restore other-centeredness. These kinds of weapons threaten evil because they remove me from the center of things and put something much bigger in its place. Love, vulnerability, and faithfulness. Now, as many of you know, we're in this sermon series that unpacks our commitment to being an intentionally anti-racist faith community, the kind of community that practices calling each other in and calling each other out. It's challenging, sometimes even painful work, and and this, it's, but it's this work that kind of that arms us with these weapons of mass restoration, to believe that God's love is real and binds us together, to have vulnerability, to bear witness to God's love at work in our lives, faithfulness, to know that my participation is just one part of a greater thing that God is doing. So how do we do this? How do we wield these weapons of mass restoration? What does that look like, really? Well, one of the ways that we do this is by telling our stories with greater clarity. We've mentioned that next week we'll be having this all-community conversation to learn about the findings and recommendations of our anti-racism audit. And then a few weeks after that, well, on November 12th, we'll spend some more time um, engaged in racial caucusing, gathering as people of white and people of color to process and kind of um, reflect more deeply on the audit. And I know I mentioned all of this last week, but there was a really great question that was posed to me after worship last week, and it was this. How do people of color benefit from white supremacy? And I, I could respond to the question offline, but I think it's, it's a really important question. And it fits right in with our conversation today about what dismantles and defeats evil. Because you see, one of the things that we learn, you learn about in anti-racism work is this kind of dance, a, a pattern of behavior um, that emerges between white people and people of color when we act, interact. It's kind of like when you go home um, for Thanksgiving dinner and you, know, you are a grown person, but somehow you end up being like acting like that middle child and you, know, you say the thing and your older sister says the thing that she knows will get you and you'll, you know, and it all just like fall, you can just see it all coming together like even before you've even shown up for dinner, right? So, so it's kind of similar to that. Like there's just this pattern that emerges. Um, and so our partners at Crossroads um, Anti-Racism call it the dance between internalized racist 
superiority and internalized racist inferiority. So internalized racist superiority, if you were here our first week, you would have heard this. It's defined as a complex, multi-generational socialization process that teaches white people to believe, accept, and or live out superior societal definitions of self and to fit into and live out superior societal roles. And so you just get used to being a certain way, right? Acting a certain way and believing a certain um, way. These, these behaviors define and normalize the race construct and its outcome, which is white supremacy. Now, IRS takes shape in countless ways, but I'll give a few examples. If you've never had to go to a special section of the store to find maybe one or two hair care products that could work for the texture of your hair, if it's relatively easy to find positive, empowering role models depicted in ads or television shows or movies whose racial makeup matches yours, if conversations about the double eyelid or a special surgery that makes your eyes appear more Western don't show up among you and your friends, if you've never had a hard time finding a few folks in your family or among family friends who could give you substantive guidance on how to improve your college entrance essay, your resume, or make decisions concerning long-term financial investments. If a person of color is selected over you for a college entrance or a job and your first assumption is not that they were more qualified or competent than you, but that it must be because of affirmative action or reverse racism, all of these things are attributed to an unquestioned sense of being able to navigate the world and society with confidence because others don't have access to the same experiences. And this results in a sense of superiority. Even if you honestly couldn't or would never say that you felt superior, it doesn't mean that it's not there like a background app running your thoughts shaping your perspectives, or framing your assumptions about how the world ought to work. Now, on the flip side is internalized racist inferiority, a complex, multi-generational socialization process in which people of color accept, believe, and live out negative societal definitions. We can't help but be affected by these messages that are all around us. And it's a different set of background apps running, uh, shaping our thoughts, behavior and our outlook on the world. That Asian men are less masculine, that black women are angry, that Latinx men are bad hombres. You know what I'm talking about because you've seen it, you've heard it, and you've felt it. And it distorts our relationships as people of color with one another. Here's one example how I have seen it recently playing out, and this is a, a, a fraught example, but you know, bear with me. So if you know me, you know I don't care about sports. But I do care about people. And as it turns out, a lot of people play sports. <laughs> One of these people is the basketball player Jeremy Lin. Now, Jeremy Lin plays for the Charlotte Hornets and apparently has been trying on all these different hairstyles, mohawks, ponytails, mana buns, and all that, right? Well, he has recently decided to sport dreadlocks. And not long after he unveiled his locks, uh, ESPN analyst Kenyon Martin had some words in a tweet uh, to share that has, um, have since been deleted. He said, do I need to remind this boy that his last name is Lynn? Like, come on, man, let's stop this. Somebody needs to tell him, all right, bro, we get it, you want to be black. Like, we get it, but the last name is Lynn. Now, 
Personally, I'm not really a fan of Jeremy Lin's uh, choice, but I'm not one to speak considering that I had a few unfortunate um, years in my own hair history, which involves bleaching streaks. Um, but what I thought was really interesting about this was Jeremy Lin's response. He said, hey man, it's all good. At the end of the day, I appreciate that I have dreads and you have Chinese tattoos because I think it's a, a sign of respect. And I think that as minorities, the more we appreciate each other's cultures, the more we influence mainstream society. Thanks for everything you did for the nets and the hoops and hoops. Had your poster up on my wall growing up. After this response, there were all these black athletes who kind of came to speak up um, in support of Lynn. And for the record, I also have opinions about Chinese tattoos, but the point I want to make about this exchange <laughs> is that they're having a conversation that navigates an important dynamic where I think the answer to the question I was asked last week is revealed. Because one of the sad distortions of white supremacy is that it pits people of color against each other. Blacks against Latinx, against Asians, like a racial caste system. And there are these different intersections around melanin, class, education, and respectability that white supremacy exploits in order to uphold the structure. You follow me? What I think is important about this exchange between Martin and Lee, even if it's a little clunky, is that it explores a question. What does it mean to be people of color who engage each other, who figure out what works and doesn't work in relationship with one another outside of the filter of white supremacy? How do we confront the biases that we've absorbed um, as a result of internalized racist superiority or inferiority that prevent people of color from having conversations that there must be space for in order to build ways of relating that reflect true Christian fellowship and relationship in this world. Caucusing gives us space to tease out the ways that these distortions play out in our minds and in our lives, unwittingly. Because if we ignore them, if we try to pretend that they don't exist, we're essentially allowing ourselves to be guided by them. As we heard Brene Brown say last week, if you don't own your story, your story will own you. It's not your fault or my fault, it's the default. But it's all of our responsibility as disciples of Jesus, as people who are bound together by the love of the Lamb to own up to our participation, even if it's accidental and unintentional, to root out those things at work within us that divide us and ultimately uphold evil in the world. This is one of the ways where we begin to hone our weapon of witness, where we give ourselves space to understand what is going on within us and around us and learn to speak our truths with just a little bit more clarity, our struggles, our pains, our frustrations, with authenticity and courage. We learn to speak our truths with a, a courageous vulnerability, as our passage says for today. Love for our lives doesn't make us afraid to die. In accepting her Emmy, Lena Waithe thanks a lot of people, including um, Aziz. She says, uh, thank you for pushing me to co-write this. Now we're standing here. I love you. Thank you and Alan for creating a show like Master of None where we can tell stories like this. And she goes on to say something very important. And last but certainly not least, my LGBTQTIA family. I see each and every one of you. The things that make us different, those are our superpowers. 
every day when you walk out the door, put on your imaginary cape and go out there and conquer the world because the world would not be as beautiful as it is if we weren't in it. And for everybody out there that showed us so much love for this episode, thank you for embracing a little Indian boy from South Carolina and a little queer black girl from the south side of Chicago. We, we appreciate it more than you could ever know. Thank you, Academy, for this. We love y'all. God bless y'all. The things that make us different, these are our superpowers. Go out there and conquer the world. Now, I don't think that Lena had revelation on her mind when she said those words, but she nailed it when she said it. There is, undeniably, something being dismantled, destroyed, and conquered when we tell the truth about who we are and when we draw on the fullness of who God created us to be. Evil is mortally wounded. The dragon is defeated. And when we speak the truth of God's goodness at work within us and around us, stories of unapologetic liberation from closetedness, confronting our participation in white supremacy, just trying to have honest conversations about who we are, even if they are a little clunky. Every time we tell authentic, vulnerable stories, no matter who we are, we begin to dismantle those forces that separate us from God and from one another. Every time we tell authentic, vulnerable stories about our lives, we can't help but see each other with greater compassion, connectedness, and care. And every time we tell authentic, vulnerable stories, whether it's the story of a little Indian boy from South Carolina or a queer black girl from the south side of Chicago or a DACA dreamer daring to step out of the shadows. Telling your truth reminds us that we are bound together by God's love and nothing can shut that down. When we tell authentic, vulnerable stories, we bear witness to that love at work in our lives and bit by bit, word by word, we become dragon slayers taking down the old snake who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. We usher in a new world order. We resurrect truth and life, and we unleash our weapons of mass restoration. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks that you have given us all that we need in order to take down the devil. We give you thanks that you have given all the things that we need to us in order to dismantle evil in this world. Help us to be people of courage. Help us to be people of compassion, of connectedness, to dare to share our stories and create space for others to share theirs. Help us to lift each other up and do the work within ourselves and among one another in order to do that with greater fullness and truth. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.